From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're coming to you one last time from my office here in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what we've learned from this election. We'll be looking back to the lessons of the past few months and looking forward to what lies ahead. I'm also joined this week by Tony Grabener, Lord Grabener QC, a Labour peer and one of Britain's leading lawyers, to discuss human rights, the politics of opposition and the future of the Labour Party. He tells me why this government will need to work with the House of Lords if it's going to get what it wants. I'm invariably in favour of pre-legislative scrutiny because I think the House of Lords is very good at it. And whereas the House of Commons is not particularly good at legislation generally. And why Labour needs to remember who the real enemy is. What that leaves you with is an obvious route, which is to attack the Tory heartland. You've got to do that. Tony Blair understood that. Ed Miliband did not understand that. Stay with us. Before that, some reflections on what this election has meant to us. Our intrepid reporter Lizzie Presser went out and about around Cambridge to ask people how this election would be remembered. What were their standout moments from the campaign? Cameron was better than everybody else. We all saw it. That's why we won. On TV, media, radio. He gave the answers we wanted. He was saying the right things to us. Uh, when the exit poll came out and being terrified that it was true and then waking up in the morning and realising that it was. Uh, yeah, I think the best, the best bit was Favage. Like when he, when he slagged off the audience at the BBC, like, um, Bate was just taking it further than you thought he would and when he blamed like, the NHS being in trouble on immigrants with HIV. But then, it's, but then when he get, didn't get a seat was one of the happiest moments of that day. The look on everyone else's face there, especially Al Moe. Is definitely something I remember. I think one thing I remember this election by was actually on the morning of, of the day after the election, about I think about 6 a.m., I was woken up by cheering um, outside my room from Labour supporters who were you know, ecstatic that Labour had managed to gain a seat in Cambridge. I think out of this general election was the response to the outcome. I have never seen such a swell of outrage at what the government is proposing, especially with regards to the Human Rights Act. Everybody was so up in the air. Up till the 11th hour, majority of people didn't know who they were going to vote for. And I, don't, I think that's historically it's not really ever happened. There used to be a show on TV back in the 80s called Runaround, and it was Runaround. You, you landed on that spot, and you had one minute to change your mind quickly, quickly change your mind, where am I going to end up? And that's how it felt this year. So to our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory. We're recording on the morning before the new government unveils its legislative programme for this parliament in its first Queen's speech. The political battle lines that will shape the next election are already being drawn. But before we resume politics as usual, I want to ask each of our panel what stands out in retrospect for them from this election, which we've been discussing from many different angles over the past four months. Chris, how do you think this election is going to be remembered? Last week, we were talking about how the election wasn't much like 1992, 
But I think it may be remembered in the same way that the 1992 election is remembered in this country, uh, not only because of the failure of the opinion pollsters to get it right, but also that realisation after the votes were counted that Labour was never really in the game at all. What people thought was a close election turned out not to be, and it becomes quite hard to work out, especially with Miliband as the front man, just as Kinnock was the front man in 1992, what Labour might have done differently in order to win it. So we talked about the disanalogies last week, uh, but in retrospect, I think the election will come to feel a lot more like 1992 in popular memory. My memory of it is likely to be, I don't want this to be too solipsistic, but we've been doing this podcast and this is how I'll think of it. We've been talking about it a lot. And in retrospect, we were talking about an illusion for a lot of the time. It turns out that we were taking very seriously, as Chris says, something that was actually a kind of fantasy. And lots of the things that we took very seriously, I think my enduring memory of it, we didn't talk about it so much, thankfully, on this podcast. The day that Miliband met Russell Brand, The Guardian wrote about it as though it were sort of Nixon and Mao in China, this world historic event. And it now just looks like complete and utter froth. Is that how you're going to remember it, Finbar, that we spent too much time talking about something which was just an illusion? We absolutely did. But I I don't think it's that we were talking about an illusion in the sense that everybody had headed off into a fantasy land. I think we were misled by the polls. The question there about why the polls were wrong, other people are going over in great, great detail. For me, the really important thing, though, was we see the end of one version of the Labour Party, And we saw a giving away of the space or the discussion around the big, big issues that face the country. We had an election which was heat and light. It was portrayed as the end of time by the Conservatives if the SNP and Labour got in. It was portrayed by Labour as the end of time if the Conservatives got in and and, and put in austerity. But at the end of the day, there was no substance behind any of that big rhetoric. And so for me, the most dissatisfying and saddening thing that I'll remember is an election which was all fireworks but no content. Which doesn't make it a great advertisement for democracy. But then the other way of putting it is that the great thing about democracy is that there is all this froth and then the people speak and they cut through it. And you realise that actually, underneath all that froth, people who vote had a completely different perspective of what the issues were than the commentators on the whole. And they had a simpler and more straightforward, and in some ways, more realistic view of what was politically possible. Is that, Helen, is that the way to spin this slightly more positively, that actually this was just a classic example of how democracy can surprise you? What is striking is is just how, in many ways, useless much of the commentary was, because in retrospect, the outcome of the election was entirely overdetermined. It's not possible for a party that has a leader with as low approval ratings as Miliband started the campaign with and was as far behind on economic competence, or I should say perceptions of economic competence, as Labour was in relation to the Conservatives, to have won the election. And that's before we even get onto the onto the Scotland issue. It would have been almost earth-shattering in electoral terms if any other outcome other than the one that happened had happened. And yet somehow it was a possibility that wasn't discussed by the political commentariat for the entire election campaign. And in that sense, I think that is, it damns the commentators. It doesn't damn democracy. And we've sort of become part of the political commentary. And I think I should say, Helen, on your behalf, that you stood out over the past 16 weeks in telling us and helping us realise just how important it is not to get carried away by the stories we're hearing from the commentators. And you did more than I think the rest of us see it clearly. It's also clear in retrospect that so much of this is driven by 
not just newspapers, but the need of the media to have a story that they can tell in ways that people both understand and also excites people, makes it more of a horse race. And the horse race aspect of this was driving it all the way through. And as we've all, I think, now agreed, I think we all, even maybe Helen a little bit, but less than the rest of us, we all got a bit caught up in it. Did we, Chris? I'm not sure that's quite right about the media. Um, I think, as Finbar says, it's a story about the polls. I think a lot of people uh, who would naturally be quite sceptical of the kind of horse race coverage you get, especially in the United States media when there are presidential elections with these the nonsense they talk about, momentum and so on. I think a lot of us see through that quite easily. But when you have the volume of opinion polling from the number of different companies and they're all telling you the same story, obviously people want excitement and obviously there's a strong tendency towards wishful thinking. But what we had in this election is we had people who had the discipline to check their tendency towards wishful thinking by looking at the polls, often looking in quite careful detail at not just the headline figures, but the internal information when you dig into the polls and see what's going on in different subsamples and so on. That's where people got led astray. And that's the reason why people thought the horse race was much, much closer than it was. If the media had been saying it was close and the polls had been telling a different story, this wouldn't have happened in anything like the same way. Although, of course, the reason we had so many polls is that every newspaper commissioned a new poll, not daily, although some in some cases for the YouGov polls daily, it is being driven by their paymasters. We're going to come back at the end of the program to talk a little bit about what we now know about how people voted in retrospect, what the exit polls tell us about the demographics and so on. I just want to quickly ask you what your moment that you will remember from this election is. I don't know if mine is Russell Brand and Ed Miliband, though I think I will always take pleasure from the fact that this election trashed the Russell Brand brand. I mean, it was a bit like, I was thinking of the analogy, we talked about this before, it would have been a bit like Sinn Féin as having swallowed their pride and decided we will take our seats in this new parliament so we can have influence showing up and discovering the Tories had a majority after all and slinking back. Russell Brand has had a little bit of that done to him and I'm pleased about that. Finbar, what's your memory? What's the, is there a moment in this election that stands out for you when you look back and you think that's the sort of image that will stay with you? There are actually quite a number of images. We're going to be terrorised by images of the headstone behind Miliband. We're going to be terrorised of the moment where Miliband was asked, did you spend too much? And he stepped right into the question and said, no, they didn't. And in some ways, reconfirmed for a lot of people what they thought about him, whether or not that was right or wrong, but what they thought about him. But for me, and it's obvious given what we've been doing for the past 16 weeks, the moment I saw the exit poll, that completely turned everything on its head. And almost you step from one version of the universe to another version of the universe. Helen, do you have a moment apart from the exit poll? I think we all had that. I think anyone with an interest in politics that moment, and it was so striking, you spend months, and in the case of these politicians, years building up to this moment, and it takes 10 seconds for the air to drain out of the bubble. Helen, do you, apart from the exit poll, do you have a moment that stands out from the campaign or even from before that? The two moments that Finbar have said are the, the most striking to me, the moment in the Leeds question time when Ed Miliband pretty unapologetically said that he couldn't understand effectively why anyone would think that Labour had spent too much. But also the, the Moses tablet, I have to say, because I had been literally 24 hours before having my first serious doubts as to whether I got this Miliband business entirely wrong. <laughs> then that morning, I saw that. God bless I, me, confirmed <laughs> that you were right. And I thought, this is even worse than I could have conceived possible. I think that in terms of 
just a symbol of his ineptitude as a leader, then it's hard to beat the the Moses um, tablet. But I think the thing that we should be remembering about this election in this respect is what's happening in Scotland, because it may well be that this is a significant step on the path to the end of the union, and that will change the entire country that we've all both accepted, um, lived in all our lives. I have to say there's one other image that stays with me, which we haven't talked about this. I think it predates even this podcast, which was a photograph of Cameron and Osborne. I think they were coming out of a pub in Oxfordshire and they were wearing those kind of 1950s Tory overcoats that Macmillan and Rab Butler and people wore. And they just looked so completely at home as the governing class. And I thought this is either really hubristic or genuinely these people are confident that they now have this in their pocket. There was this kind of Macmillan look to them that this is our country and we rule it. And it's come back to me now. I didn't think about it much in the campaign. I should dig it up. We should maybe put it on our website. It's actually a really, really striking. We've talked about the historical analogies here. They look a bit in that photograph like 1950s Tories, the ruling class. I still think one of the most interesting things about the Conservative Party, which we don't talk about that much, is the way that the party is in the hands of very rich men again. From the time of Ted Heath through to the time of uh, William Hague, the Conservatives consistently chose as leader people with lower middle class backgrounds uh, who'd made it either through the university system, often through Oxford, or in John Major's case, without the benefit of university education. But there was something meritocratic about where the Conservatives were getting their leaders from. After the long period of opposition uh, to the Blair government, uh, the Conservatives moved sharply back to not necessarily old money, but to large amounts of money, and the extent to which, with uh, Cameron and Osborne at the top of the Conservative Party, they've got the kinds of leaders that for 40 years they would have run a million miles from. I continue to think that's a very interesting aspect of the contemporary Conservative Party. Thanks to Helen Finbar and Chris. I'll be coming back to them to look ahead at the end of this show. Now to Lord Grabener, who's been closely involved at the top level of Labour politics for many years, in particular as a friend and ally of David Miliband. We will come to the question of Miliband versus Miliband later in our conversation. But first, I wanted to ask him about the looming battles the government faces over its plans to reform the Human Rights Act. We don't yet know what sort of legislation is being proposed. It may become a little clearer after today's Queen's speech, though the early indications are that the government is holding fire for now. I began by asking Tony Grabener what he thought the government was trying to achieve. My sense is that they feel that we have relinquished too much power to the European Court of Human Rights, which sits in Strasbourg. We only have a a UK judge on that court, but there are many other judges from all around the community who are members of the Council of Europe. The Convention on Human Rights has been legislated into English domestic law by the Human Rights Act of 1998. And the arrangement is that... We are supposed to, under the express terms of the Human Rights Act, we're supposed to take into account decisions of the Strasbourg Court. I think those are the words of the statute. Unfortunately, I mean, this is my personal view, but I also think it is the uh, the Tory party view. Unfortunately, those words have been interpreted to mean that decisions of the Strasbourg Court are binding on the English courts. 
And as I say, I think that that, with respect to that decision, is wrong. And the result of that is that we then give decisions here which are not just influenced by rulings from Strasbourg, but actually find themselves driven by decisions from Strasbourg. And I think the substantive criticism, certainly expressed in legal terms, of the current structure is um, a desire by the new government to give ourselves a little bit of independence so that decisions will be taken which have a, a British quality to them, but hopefully with a British final quality to them, without the possibility of the case then going off to Europe and the English court or the British court being reversed. So as I understand it, and you'll need to correct me if I'm wrong, because I've also, as a member, lay member of the public, this is a complicated area, but the government in a sense has a choice, which is its problem is with the court, not with the convention. So it's the role of the European Court of Human Rights that it wishes to, in some sense, circumscribe. The really radical way of doing that would be to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, but that would be a very significant step. If the new legislation was simply redrafted to incorporate the convention but change the wording about the relationship with the court, that may not go as far as some members of the Tory party want in signalling a really radical break with what's happened since the passing of the Human Rights Act. So are the government, in a sense, trapped between two options, one of which may not go far enough for some of their own backbenchers if they remain in the convention but simply redraft the legislation to change the wording. But the other way, which is to withdraw from the convention, would go too far for many people, including some of their backbenchers. People like David Davis have already said they wouldn't be willing to accept that. Is, is that a correct understanding of the politics of this? Well, I think so. I mean, I think it is quite a complicated issue because of our treaty obligations as a nation state. Our treaty obligations, uh, in effect, provide for our membership of the uh, European system. Um, and in particular uh, as for, for access to and membership of the Council of Ministers. And if we withdrew from the Convention, I think that that would mean that we would almost certainly have to withdraw from the Council uh, or we would be kicked out of the Council. So I think the radical step is a non-runner. One way you could do it, I suppose, is you could simply legislate everything that's in the Convention and you could call it a British Bill of Rights or something like that, provided you incorporated everything that was in the convention but that seems rather a pointless exercise so what we could end up doing is your first suggestion which is that we simply change the current structure and we give predominance or precedential value to the British judgment but retaining the convention as part of English domestic law there's one other issue there I suppose it may be possible to identify matters which ought to be rights, which are currently not in the Convention. It's very difficult to imagine there might be such things. And on the other side of the same coin, that there might be rights which are currently in the Convention which are not very attractive to certain right-wing areas of the Tory party. I mean, I can imagine, for example, that somebody might say, well, the right to private life or family life, which is one of the basic rights in the Convention, 
is too wide because it shouldn't extend to um, extradition in cases, you know, where we want to get rid of somebody because they're a menace to British society or we think that they're a danger to British society. And, and just to clarify to people, that's one of the issues that has been a real yeah. red rag to some members of the Tory party, the, the fact that we cannot extradite mm. certain people because they can claim a right to family life in this country. Indeed. So, so the argument there would be not that we... Um, get out of the convention, but that we restrict the application of it in some way because we might, for example, diminish or cut down some of the rights by reference to these uh, elements. I mean, this is a serious... I think this is a serious political argument, and I can imagine that that would be an area where where there would be a lot of domestic debate. I particularly disagree with Shami Chakrabarti. You know, she is the chair of um, Liberty... And she takes the view that this is the worst proposal that there's ever been since the Second World War. And if you do this, you're going to reverse, you know, the whole world, the end is nigh and so on and so forth. Doomsday view of the, of the world. I fundamentally disagree with her on that subject. I mean, if, for example, we repealed the Human Rights Act and then re-legislated it as a Bill of Rights, there'd be nothing wrong with doing that. But I can see that there will be a powerful debate along the lines of the point that we were just discussing about um, reducing or cutting down the uh, right to family life if it extended into territory that uh, some people find actually rather objectionable. And one argument that is sometimes being made at the moment about the problem of what you just proposed, which is to redraft the legislation with pretty much the same rights but make it a British Bill of Rights rather than the current European arrangement is that the European Convention and everything that goes with it is built into our devolution arrangement. So it's part of the Good Friday Agreement, it's part of the devolution arrangement with Scotland. There's a sort of constitutional question and a political question here. The political question is it could exacerbate tensions within the union. It could be a, a lever that the SNP, for example, could use to insist that the current arrangements aren't working. Uh, Michael Gove is, uh, um, I think, I mean, I've never met him, uh, he is a highly intelligent person. I'm very hopeful indeed that he won't be pressed by certain elements of the Tory party into doing something on a rushed basis. What I think would be a very good way forward would be if he were to appoint perhaps a joint committee of the Commons and the Lords to do some pre-legislative scrutiny. I think if he were to rush into this, it would be a very bad mistake. I'm invariably in favour of pre-legislative scrutiny because I think the House of Lords is very good at it. And whereas the House of Commons is not particularly good at legislation generally for all sorts of reasons, but the Lords is very good at this material and it has great expertise available to it. And I think that if there ever was a, an example of something that needed that, uh, this, is, uh, this is that example. Just on the question of the timetables, part of the politics of this mm. is that there are clashing timetables here and the central event of this parliament is going to be the referendum on membership of the European Union. And of course, the Conservative Party want as many things lined up as possible before that vote in order to say they've extracted the concessions, they've made the reforms, they've made the changes. And there is some move within the party to have that referendum sooner rather than later. So is your sense that there could be a clash here between these timetables Reform of human rights, as you said, needs to take time mm -hmm. and it needs to be done carefully. 
The Conservative Party needs as much as possible on the table before that referendum in order to go to the country and say, we're offering you reformed membership of the EU. And I think human rights is an important part of that simply for presentational reasons, because it, though it's a complex issue, it resonates with people when they hear some of the examples. So do you have some anxiety there that actually what's going to be driving this is the EU referendum timetable and not the timetable that you described, which would be the more sensible approach? Well, I agree. I mean, the, my understanding at the outset was that the plan was to have the referendum in relation to Europe in 2017. But there is apparently some pressure coming uh, within the Tories for 2016. If they do that, they'll end up compressing the time and therefore by necessarily compressing the available time period for the human rights stuff. I mean, that would be a very bad thing. You could end up in a, in a bad place because if they make a mess of the human rights amendments, just to use a neutral word for the moment, then he won't have as attractive a proposition to make. One assumes his plan is to be able to be in a position to recommend to the nation that the referendum should be in favour of staying in Europe. On the basis of the concessions and on reforms the, that he's made. On the basis extract. that he extracts deals from other member states and, in addition, that he's able to satisfy his own party about, for example, amendments to the human rights legislation. But if he's not... Obviously, he'll want to present the best possible portfolio of improvements. But if he is not able to do that on the human rights front, then that undermines the quality of his argument and his ability to persuade the people around him. There's another very practical point here, which is also very important, and I know you want to come to it, but it is crucial, and that is this. He'll be able to get through, presumably, what he wants to get through in the Commons. But he does have a problem in the Lords. And in the coalition government, they lost more than 100 votes or 100 divisions in the Lords in the last parliament. And that was at a time when he was in combination with the Lib Dems. Who have a significant number of peers, oh, you, over 100. They have a lot more peers than they have MPs. Yeah, a I lot mean, more, 10 uh, times more. 10 I times more. More than 10 times more. And they all, and they all move in a, in a group. And they all stick together, and they're a very powerful group in terms of numbers, if not necessarily talent. I think that what is going to be very important indeed is the ability of the government to convince the rest of the Lords, crossbenchers, and indeed there'll be uh, Labour peers as well, to their point of view. And if they're going to be proposing uh, amendments which people are going to find unacceptable, they could end up in a situation in which they will fail to achieve what they want to achieve because the Lords will be blocking it. Now, the Lords won't block it forever. The Lords might say no two or possibly three times, or maybe they'll cave in on the third time for constitutional reasons you and your listeners will be familiar with. But they will have a very powerful delay impact. That's another reason why it's important not to run before you can walk in relation to this uh, particular proposal. Um, it may also have an impact upon the referendum date, because it is a very important point. And even the referendum itself has to be legislated for in the Commons and has to pass the Lords. Do you think, to broaden it out a bit, that therefore we might be looking at a five-year parliament? And I haven't heard anyone suggesting that the current Conservative government is planning to repeal the five-year fixed-term Parliament Act, mm -hmm. though they may. I think they would have trouble actually getting that through the Commons. Um, so assuming we are looking at a five-year parliament, do you think it's likely to be a parliament in which confrontation between the Commons and the Lords 
as it were, rises up the political agenda. Because we've got used in the past, though, as you say, during the coalition, there was quite a lot of tension there. That kind of raw political clash hasn't been a feature of politics recently. But given the range of constitutional, among other things, reforms this government is proposing, do you think that's actually where the opposition is going to come from? Because the Labour Party are weak at the moment, the Liberal Democrats, as we know, are weak in the Commons. But in the Lords, there is a really significant body of opposition to the current majority in the Commons. Yes, I just wonder if it's political rather than sort of common sense. The Labour Party is incredibly weak at the moment. It's being absolutely devastated by the election. And um, there is no obvious front-running candidate. I think that you could end up in a situation where the Lords is leaderless because the Lord's Labour side is leaderless until such time as we know who the leader's going to be. That does have quite a profound impact because there doesn't seem to be any sort of political objective that anyone's concerned with at the moment rather than getting over the shock of what happened in the uh, in the election, certainly as far as the leadership of the Labour Party is concerned. I'm afraid it's a bit like a headless chicken at the moment, literally. The Labour Party at the moment, absolutely. That's a very depressing time for those of us who have been Labour supporters for as long as we can remember. That's interesting what you say about the Lords, in that I suppose people tend to think, and maybe even I think of the Lords in a sense, as being slightly less in need of that kind of overt political leadership in order to corral opposition to what the government does. But as you've described it, in the absence of a clear steer from the parties, though there are a large number of peers who are on the other side of the benches to the current government, you think you won't get that kind of organised opposition to what the government is proposing? Well, we'll have to see. As to, I think it's a bit too early to tell. But you see, if you combine pre-legislative scrutiny with sensible arguments and not too drastic proposals, which I, I think the government is planning to retain most if not all of what we currently have in the form of the convention, then I think that might well endear people from all round the Lords to support whatever the proposals are or not to be too aggressive in their opposition for the sake of opposition. I mean, if you've got a very aggressive leader of your party in the Commons, then obviously your function, at least in part, is not just to improve legislation, but it's to defeat the government on divisions and to give it a hard time, you know, when it comes to passing through legislation. I don't think we're in that position at the moment. And just opposing something for the sake of it without any plan or game plan seems a bit pointless. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In that case, actually, there's a timetable that works to the advantage of the government, which is the Labour leadership timetable, because they're not going to have a leader. For several months, I think. September. And in that time, as you yeah. say, 
there is an opportunity for the government to work with a leaderless lords yeah. to create certain amounts of joint work in this area so that when a leader comes in and starts politicizing it again mm. some of the heavy lifting has already been done so there is an opportunity here for michael gove if he's smart presumably i think to so. use this window yeah. the, the labor leader leaderless window yeah. to work with the lords to get this legislation through i think so and also he's able to access some you know very good people in the lords who are not politically knee-jerking either for or against amendments there are some excellent people to whom he could have recourse who would be not necessarily Tory supporters, who would be able to give him some guidance and advice. I think he's smart enough to, to do that. I hope he does. I don't want to add to your depression about the state of the Labour Party, but there is a possibility for the reasons we've just described that the mistake is being repeated that was the mistake that was made in 2010. After all, the, in 2010, the Labour Party spent a long time picking a leader. And I think most people would agree now picking the wrong leader. But during the five months that it took to get from the election to Ed Miliband as leader, the coalition set the political agenda. They actually used those five months, among other things, to make the austerity narrative the narrative of the parliament, because the Labour Party was turned inward and was fighting its own internal battles. My own view is that actually they needed, even if it was only an interim leader, to have a leader in place, not Harriet Harman, but have a leader in place now who could at least take part in the arguments over the summer, which are going to shape this parliament. Am I right to think that the Labour Party is making the same mistake again, that it's actually turning in on itself at the crucial point, which is when you have to set the agenda for the next five years? Well, I'm afraid so. I mean, I was a David Miliband fan. I was a David Miliband supporter. And several of my friends on the Labour side in the Lords are in exactly the same boat. And I'm afraid that the result when Ed was appointed or elected, you know, was as much a shock to us that night as uh, the result of the election was the other day. So all this period for me has been rather a depressing period. I mean, I've been very irritated by the fact that he's decided to create a sort of new class warfare and doesn't seem to have learnt the lesson that Blair did bring, which was that um, the best way to succeed is to give up class warfare, to focus on the middle ground and try and bring yourself kicking and screaming into the 21st century. But for reasons best known to himself, he didn't want to do that. And unfortunately, there are people around him who supported him. Now there's been a major clear-out Uh, It's quite interesting that uh, at least some of the candidates are making noises along these lines, although they were quite content to sit with him in opposition at the relevant time, saying the opposite. But hopefully, and this is the way of the world as we know, but hopefully it will resolve itself. My problem is that at the moment I can't see an obvious candidate, I'm reluctant to use the word, but it's got to be a Blair-type person, forgetting Iraq and all that, What you need is someone who's of the modern world, a serious politician. And um, at the moment, I'm not sure that we have those candidates available to us. Philip Collins has just published an article in The Times just before we speak, in which he argues that the Labour Party is making, as he says, a a grotesquely stupid mistake, which is to think that it's fighting these three battles with the SNP, with UKIP in the north, and with the Tories in the south, and that the third of those is not the one that really matters, Mm -hmm. that actually someone like Andy Burnham is there to fight off the UKIP threat in northern seats. And his argument is, it is and it always 
always has been an argument about whether Labour can win over the kind of people who would otherwise vote Tory in order to create a government. And he thinks there's a real risk that this leadership election, because Labour is fighting on so many different fronts, will lose sight of the central argument, as you described it, which is to occupy that middle ground. Do you think he's right? And do you think that that there is any chance that this leadership election will focus the party's attention back on what it needs to do to win over wavering Labour Tory voters? Well, all you can do is to pray and hope that uh, we're going to get some common sense. Uh, I'm afraid that um, I'm very depressed still. Uh, I I can't see that they're going to get to the right place in time. My view is that UKIP is an evanescent thing. It's not going to... It won't survive, and it shouldn't survive, and it'll go away. The Greens might make a little bit more headway, but they're they're never going to be serious enough. The Lib Dems are completely devastated. The SNP are a real force. The the SNP is a different story altogether, a real force. Scotland, having largely been abandoned by the Tories and indeed by Labour for many years, is actually an unsurprising development if you view it in historical terms. But what that leaves you with, in my view, and I'm not really a politician, I'm just a lawyer, but... What that leaves you with is an obvious route, which is to attack the Tory heartland. You've got to do that. Tony Blair understood that. Ed Miliband did not understand that. And I'm not quite sure which of these candidates that we're now presented with does understand that. It may be that Tristram Hunt would be um, the best person. But my understanding from the news a couple of days ago is that he's now stood down. He's, he's put his support behind Liz Candle, who is going to be, therefore, assuming she gets the 35 MPs she needs, the Blairite candidate. She gave a press yeah. conference in which she avoided that term, but it's yes. the label that will well, be stuck on her. It, that's what the debate comes to, I think. That upsets a lot of sort of die-hard left on the Labour side. But if you're going to be involved in the game of politics, presumably, ultimately, you want to have power and you want to be able to legislate for the future and to the way that this nation state is going to proceed. So fiddling about with uh, ancient politics and with using the trades unions as your you know, complete uh, protector and leader and financier is not going to get you anywhere at all because the great British public has seen through that. One of the striking things about Blair's legacy in contemporary British politics is he has many more admirers on the Tory front bench Mm. than he does on the Labour front bench. David Cameron, George Osborne and Michael Gove are all big Tony Blair fans. We know that they treat his memoirs as a kind of guide to politics. And you said that Labour needs to attack the Tories in their heartland. The Tories who may well be the threat to Labour in the North as well as in the South, are trying to take on Labour in their heartland. I mean, George Osborne wants to create a Northern powerhouse. He's serious, I think, now about taking the fight North. Mm. They've won the South. They've held on in Wales. They, they did OK, actually, the Tories in Scotland relative to what the predictions were. Do you think there's a serious threat to Labour that the Tories actually are the ones who are going to come after them in the North? Absolutely. I mean, if you listen to the Prime Minister on the subject, for example, of the NHS, uh, if you were just reading the words and you didn't know who the speaker was, you could perfectly easily conclude that it was Tony Blair speaking. And, um, and I agree with you entirely. I think that he's... I've never discussed it with him, but I'm, I'm quite sure that the Prime Minister 
um, has modelled a lot of his thinking on Tony Blair and on Tony Blair's thinking. The point about Tony Blair was his absolute commitment to get rid of all the old left-wing rigmarole and to focus on grabbing that middle ground. And a lot of it is very common sense stuff. And I think he's learnt that. And I think that the people around him agree with that. And I think that he would say, setting aside Iraq, obviously, uh, he uh, he would say, well, actually, I think that Blair did a pretty good job. And if I can replicate that philosophically, then I think I'm in a good place. And I do think that that is what's going on at the moment, definitely. And in a private moment, I'm sure he would agree with that. He can't replicate it electorally because he's told us he's not fighting another election. Well, he's he's indicated that. I don't know if that was intended or if that was just a a loose moment in that interview. I saw that. Right. I I suspect it's going to be hard to wriggle out of. I'm going to ask you one last question. might be slightly unfair. You said you were a David Miliband fan. Um, Were you disappointed that he essentially walked away from British politics, given that there would have otherwise have been an opportunity now for him to be standing in this leadership election. And do you have any hopes that there's a route back in for him? Given what happened, I don't blame him at all for leaving. He's gone. He's running a very important um, charity in New York. He's got a young family and um, they're established there now. The great pity is that it ever happened that way, because I actually think that if he'd been leading the Labour Party, we would have been many points ahead, and I suspect we would have won the election. I mean, you can never tell. But he's a serious statesman and a very distinguished person. I mean, I am in touch with him. I have had no indication that he's planning to come back, and he's been out of it for a a little while now. But it is a great tragedy. I mean, looking back on it, I suppose it's very easy to say after the event that there might have been a good moment for him to have challenged Gordon Brown when he was the Prime Minister, but he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to upset the apple cart, and he certainly didn't want to be criticised by Labour supporters causing any disruption. But looking back on it, and with the benefit of hindsight, and it's always easy with the benefit of hindsight, looking back on it, um, there was a moment when he could have challenged Gordon Brown but he didn't do it. And it may be that uh, that would have changed the course of history, but it's all in the past. You've got to take your opportunity when the time comes. And Ed Miliband certainly did take it, but not not to the benefit of the Labour Party or to this great nation, I'm afraid. It is is somewhat tragic, in a sense, to see... Mm what he sacrificed for so little in the end. I agree, I agree. But he'll have to live with that. And that's most politicians, all politicians eventually have to live with it. That's why I never became one. (laughs) Many thanks to Lord Grabener. Now back to our news panel for one last time. This is the final episode in the current season of election. When we come back in January, as well as continuing to take the temperature of British politics, we're going to be looking at elections around the world, starting with the presidential primaries in the United States. We've talked a little bit in this series about whether British politics is becoming more presidential and more American, but there are still some big differences. One is the far greater significance of race in American politics than in the British case, though again that gap may be closing. Evidence this week suggested that the Conservative Party did make considerable gains in 2015, winning over Asian and other ethnic minority voters from Labour. The Republicans face a far larger task in reconnecting with non-white voters in the US. Helen, do you think that may be a decisive factor in which candidate they choose, looking for the one whose appeal extends beyond white voters? 
I think if you're looking at it abstractly, you would say certainly what the Republicans need is a Hispanic candidate. And there is a Hispanic candidate running for the Republican nomination, and that's Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida. The problem is, is it's quite difficult to see at the moment how he's going to win the Republican nomination, not least because of the positions that he's taken on illegal immigration, which are significantly more liberal than the conservative preferences of most or many, I should say, Republican primary voters. He's also going to face candidates with access to much more money, not least Jeb Bush. Now, Jeb Bush wants to play a Hispanic card at the same time because he has a Hispanic wife, but I don't think that that is going to be potent enough in order for the Republicans to get traction out of Jeb Bush as a candidate with non-white voters. They would do best with Rubio in this respect, but it's difficult to see how they get to Rubio. And Bill Clinton famously used to portray himself as the first black president of the United States and was not entirely implausible to understand what he was trying to say with that. I think the idea of Jeb Bush as the first Hispanic president of the United States doesn't really wash. One of the most striking facts about the last presidential election is that Mitt Romney, who was pretty soundly defeated by Obama by three or four percentage points, nonetheless won the white vote by more than 20 points. And the white vote among the American electorate still constitutes 72% of the total. So Finbar, it is still a massively divided electorate. And the Republicans, in a sense, have a choice. Do they double down on winning the white vote by enough votes to trump whatever happens in the rest of the electorate? Or do they try and broaden their appeal? I think they've got a different kind of problem as well. This is going to be post-Obama. Hillary Clinton is obviously the favorite for the Democratic nomination. And she causes a different kind of polarization, not along a race line, but along a separate Clinton line. And if enough of the white vote goes back towards the Democrats and you don't get this 20-point gap, the secondary question then of other parts of the electorate gets detuned a little bit. And actually, again, looking back at the map of the U.S. states and looking at the Electoral College, there are some very, very harsh political calculations being made as to which state you're going to need to carry. Now, Florida is very big within the Electoral College, but I don't think you can run a strategy that starts in Florida and wins you the Electoral College. And Chris, the polls we know can be wrong about lots of things, but I think we have to assume that Hillary Clinton is a very, very strong favourite to be the Democratic nominee. She is a long way ahead. And that creates another possible divide, which is a gender divide. She will appeal to lots of women voters in the United States. She may turn off some men voters, we don't know. There is now evidence in the British election that there was a significant gender divide here too. Traditionally, it's sometimes thought that women voters are more likely to be conservative. It turns out in this election, it went the other way, that actually men voted in greater numbers for the Conservative Party by a few percentage points than women did. And then there is still in British politics, as there is in American politics, what seems to me the fundamental divide, which is the age or generation gap. That is, in this election in Britain, people over the age of 55 voted in overwhelming numbers for the Conservative Party, almost double the number who voted Labour. And they turned out, as we knew in advance, in far greater numbers. The 18 to 24 age group, which voted very strongly for Labour, only 48% of them voted. And if you want one explanation why the Conservatives won, that's it. So this is a question both about Britain and about the United States. Is actually the age divide the fundamental divide in contemporary democratic politics in both countries? I think that's right. Before the election, it did look clear as if this was going to be the issue that would matter. We knew that young people weren't really voting. We knew that old people were. 
during the election campaign, we focused a lot on the headline opinion poll figures. We focused a lot on the media portrayal of the candidates and so on. We should have been paying a lot more attention to how we thought the messages of the parties were going down with older voters. It's clear that the Conservatives had a lot more in their manifesto that was specifically targeted at older voters. I don't think Labour had much more than the scaremongering about the NHS, but I think did have a dog whistle component for older voters who are the most intense users of NHS services. But yes, this is um, a very important aspect of this election, and it looks as if it will continue into the future. What I don't know is whether this is a cohort effect, whether it just is the case that people aged 60 or over uh, are more conservative. Is it something about this particular generation, or is it something about what happens to people as they get older? There's a bit of conventional wisdom that says that people get more conservative as they get older, but I don't think that's just what we're seeing at the moment. How it will play out in the future, I don't know. Optimists for the Labour Party can hope that this conservative voting generation will simply die off, whether it will be replaced by another one as a generation who have paid off their mortgage, are sitting on their houses, want to protect the value of their assets, vote conservative, well, that remains to be seen. And Helen, Chris said that healthcare does play into this age divide, and it does in the United States as well. Obamacare will be an issue in the American campaign. And again, there is a lot of evidence that the resistance to Obamacare is particularly strong among older voters who are worried about Medicare and Medicaid and those social security benefits that they've come to rely on, and they are in that sense more conservative. So do you think that that may also be a decisive factor in the American election, how the two parties tap into older people's anxieties about health care. It sounds very specific, but that actually could be really the central issue in how they mobilise different sections of the vote. If you look at the details of Obamacare and the way in which it works in practice and the effective redistribution that there is within it, it actually works to the benefit of older voters rather than to the benefit of younger voters. And now, I don't think younger voters understand that, and I think that it's one of the consequences of the fact that younger voters don't turn out to vote, that they've ended up with this healthcare reform that is actually skewed in favour of older generations over there. So there's a, it's quite difficult to see what the political impact of that is going to be because the narrative, as you would work out from what you said, David, would suggest that actually you tap into older people's fears, but actually that there isn't, if you look at it in terms of whose interests are being hurt, then actually there's something to be gained from the Republicans in a way of attacking Obamacare with younger voters. But I don't think that that will actually politically play. And we heard a bit about this from one of our students, Cleo, in one of the earlier episodes, who suggested there was a kind of vicious circle at work here because younger people don't vote and possibly don't understand policies are skewed in favour of the older generation, which encourages more older people to vote and so on. And in some ways, it is hard to see how that circle is likely to be broken. I just want to change the focus a little bit because when we come back, we're going to talk about American politics, we're going to talk about British politics, we're going to look at various elections that take place around the world. I had a look at what elections are coming up in the period after January next year. We may be talking about the Peruvian election. Anyone want to comment on that? The Ugandan election, there's going to be an election in Thailand, there may be an election in Ireland. Before January, probably the most important election that will happen, certainly in Europe, is the Spanish election. And there were local Spanish elections this week. And Spain now sees the rise of two 
opposition parties that are rejecting not just the status quo, but in a sense, the establishment order of politics in Spain as it's been in the post-Franco era. One from the left, Podemos, and I don't know whether I'm going to pronounce this right or not, but Cuidadanos, I believe they're called the Citizens Party, which is a party of the centre-right that's come out of Catalonia and rejects the established parties and is pushing for what's called a liberal reform agenda and is both an insurgent party and also in some senses pushing a mainstream economic agenda. And it set me thinking whether there is room in British politics for more political parties. Europe is seeing new parties created fairly frequently over the past five years. And some of them, particularly in Spain, have had a very rapid ascent. So Spanish politics, which was set up to be a two-party system, now has four parties, the two established parties, a party of the left, and a party of the centre-right. We've got UKIP. Fimba, have we got room for any others? Is there a chance? Because it does seem like we are in the age in which even if old parties aren't going away, new parties can come up from almost nowhere and very rapidly gain a foothold. I think that that's true in the Spanish case. And I would strongly suggest that that has a lot to do with unemployment rates and the overall economic position of Spain. And when you've got a youth unemployment rate that's north of 25%, and you've got, you know, it's in some places heading towards 50%, that's a completely different condition than the one that we see in the UK. I actually think that UKIP and other parties have taken the oxygen away for any chance for any other new party to appear in the UK at the moment. And also, having seen what just happened in the election, the illusion that we were given, and especially the number of votes that were cast for certain parties with so few seats returned to them, I actually think that the appetite for new parties is gone for a lot of people. I think you'll see a consolidation around the existing parties. It's an interesting question whether or not the Liberal Democrats will come back. They may just putter along now at you know eight seats, six to eight seats for quite a long time. Will UKIP actually still remain a force after the EU referendum? That remains to be seen. And once you take all that away, what you're left with is the rating party out of the SNP. That's the stub that might form a new party that's anti-austerity, etc., but that's the only place I could see it coming from. So one way, Chris, that you can look at this election is that people said that vote share of the two main parties was on a steady downward path, but it turns out it's not. It's been very consistent around 65, 66, in this election, 67% over the last three electoral cycles. But what has changed is the rise of what you might call the rejectionist party. So with the collapse of the Lib Dem vote, if you add up the votes given to the SNP, to the Greens and to UKIP, now you're over 20%. And that's risen from 6% to election ago. So there is a growing number of people who do not want to vote for the mainstream parties. I have a kind of fantasy that maybe there is a space in Scotland, not for an anti-austerity party, but for an anti-SNP party, that the established parties are in trouble in Scotland. And it's a bit like what's happened in Spain. I mean, if, if coming out of Catalonia is a party that rejects Catalonian independence, but wants to offer an alternative to the mainstream parties... If that was going to happen anywhere in the UK, you'd think possibly in Scotland, but I think it is probably a fantasy. But there might be a kind of anti-SNP, anti-Westminster establishment way of doing politics. One of the striking things about uh, the patterns of politics in this country is that it's on the one hand, it's very diff- difficult to kill political parties, and we are going to see the Liberal Democrats hanging on for the foreseeable future. But also, if you look at the parties that have done well recently, the SNP, UKIP, 
the Greens, they've been around for decades. The Scottish Nationalists come from the 1930s. The Greens grew, grew out of the old Ecology Party, have certainly been competing since the 1980s. The UKIP goes back to 1990s politics. These parties have been around for a long time, building up their cadre, building up their local networks, and it's only much more recently, that they've been able to do well in first-past-the-post elections. The electoral system does make it very difficult for parties to break through unless they've got very localised centres of support. And we've seen, over the last decade or so, we've seen other parties try to establish themselves and fail. The Scottish Socialist Party was one. George Galloway's Respect Party was another. There really do seem to be gains in this country from just hanging around and keeping going and staying in the game. So I'm sceptical that we will see much by way of new political parties, or if we do, my hunch is they'll go the way of the Scottish Socialists or Respect. Uh, they won't be around for a long time. You're right that there's political space in Scotland for something else, but there are also quite a lot of established networks that aren't going to go away quite so easily. And Helen, finally, the really new party in Spain is Podemos. It's only been around for a few years. It was founded, I believe, by uh, an academic political scientist with a ponytail. None of us have a ponytail, so we can't do that. Um, the other new party that is now in government is Syriza in Greece. One question for European politics, and this is, I think, a really important question for politics over the next few years, is the extent to which what looks like the unfolding disaster, potentially, of Syriza's rule in Greece is going to put people off elsewhere in Europe from taking a risk on an untried, untested, maybe idealistic party of one stripe or another, and whether actually what we're seeing in playing out in Greece is meant to be serving, and maybe the Germans and others, maybe even the Spaniards, are trying to use it as a warning to the rest of Europe, be careful about playing with fire, you really might get burned. I think that's exactly what's what's going on. From the German point of view, it would be very easy to make a compromise with Greece. The reason they don't want to make a compromise with Greece is because the message that would then send out to Spain with the Spanish election coming up by the end of the year, Greece must be sacrificed in, in this sense to keep the rest of the Eurozone in line. Does that mean that what we're actually looking at is some kind of fundamental conflict between electoral democracy and a kind of European establishment, because what's going on here is that voters are being told that what they may think is the range of possibilities available to them needs to be shrunk in a more realistic direction if they are going to get the kind of help and support that they need. Is this actually a fundamental battle between European elites and national electorates? I think that it is and that it goes to the crux of what the Eurozone crisis is about. Ultimately, in the Eurozone, it will be possible to preserve the idea of democratic government or it will be possible to preserve the Eurozone and the two of them are incompatible with each other. Thank you to Helen, Finbar and Chris for their sparkling contributions over the past 16 weeks. To our special guest, Lord Grabiner, and to all our other guests for giving us their time and their insights and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser for their sterling work in making this podcast happen. I'd also like to thank everyone who's been listening over the past four months, and particularly all those people who have sent us messages of encouragement and support. It's been enjoyable and stimulating for us, and we're delighted so many of you appear to have enjoyed it as well. I know we've had quite a few sixth formers listening in. If you've been stimulated by the conversation here do please think about coming to study politics with us at Cambridge. Just follow the links on the Polis website to find out more. 
And whoever you are, and whatever your reasons for listening in, I do hope you'll join us again next January, when election returns. Until then, my name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University podcast, Election. Thank you.